As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, just burn this scripture into our hearts through Mark, that we would understand what it means to be rich in good works, what it means to rely on you and to see your faithfulness as a source of all hope that we have for life. So be with Mark as he preaches and be with us as we hear that we may not only hear, but do what your scriptures teach us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, thank you for being here on today's national holiday. Uh, probably the, the biggest religious festival in the country happening today. And so, Chiefs fans, are you here? Okay. Uh, 49ers fans? Commercial fans? <laughs> okay. And those of us who just like food. Okay, good. Well, my uh, task this morning is to help us take all the things we've been singing about, praising God about, and uh, look at how that actually impacts how we live. Uh, if we believe the things that we say we believe, if all I have is Christ, how does that transform us? What, what difference does it make? Because uh, I'm of the conviction that, that if you believe something, it's going to show up in what you do. You know, if someone says, I really care about the poor in our country. I really think we ought to do something about that. And you say, what should you do? Well, I think the government should give more money and charities should be more charitable. So that's great. Well, will you give yourself? Well, you know, I think the government should give more money and charities should be more charitable. Well, will you give yourself? Well, I think, then you start to wonder, well, are you really committed to this? Do you really believe? Because if you believe, it's going to change how you live. And so oftentimes what we say we believe is really nothing more than virtue signaling. We confuse posting something on Facebook with actually doing something. And, uh, and so here, the scripture calls us to actually live out what we believe. If, if you truly believe this, as risky as it may be, you're going to live by faith. Well, the University of Rochester did a study with some of their seniors who were about to graduate and asked them about their goals for after graduation. And so these students set their goals and they divided their goals into two types of goals. Uh, some they called profit goals. These are students who uh, their goals were to either make a lot of money, become successful or famous. Uh, other students had what they called were purpose goals. Purpose goals are saying, I want to help people. I want to, I want to make a difference in this world. A few years after these students had graduated, the University of Rochester followed up with them, and here's what they found out, that those who had purpose goals and were achieving them were less anxious and less given to depression. They were actually happier. Those who had profit goals and were achieving them were actually more prone to anxiety and more prone to depression. In other words, they set a goal, they achieved their goals, and they were worse off because of it. We were made for more. 
You are made to live for a kingdom that is bigger than one. You are made for mission. And we've been looking at this uh, the last few weeks. As we've been looking at our theme for the city, uh, gospel, love, and living local. And so we've been looking at this idea that when, when God even created us as human beings, at the very foundation of creation, he made us to be priests and servants. And then when God redeems us as the people of God, he called us to be servants of the world as well. We are blessed to be a blessing. Well, the Apostle Paul in these verses takes that very idea and applies it uh, to us uh, as Christians. Because if you're a Christian, you want to see God's fame spread throughout the world. You want to see lives changed uh, by the gospel. And so how is this going to impact how we live? So, um, so one of the things we've, interesting from various studies have shown is that the average Christian uh, gives away about 2.5% of his or her income. Now that's actually more than the average American by far. But 2.5%, only 37% of those who attend church regularly give anything to the local church. Uh, on the other hand, there are about 10 million people who tithe. That means they give about uh, 10% or more of their income away. And these 10 million people account for $50 billion a year annually. That's a lot of money. And so that raises the question, why do some people give so generously and other people do not? Why do some people sort of a, you know, tip, if you give a, you know, one to 2%, it's probably not gonna change how you live. But if you're giving 10% or more, it is going to impact how you live. Now you may be thinking, what's the difference between the two? Those who have more money give more money. Actually, when it comes to percentage of income, the poor are twice as generous as the rich. They're twice as generous. So why is it that some people are generous and others are not? Uh, even when it impacts their lifestyle. Well, First Timothy 6, we see three key reasons that are essential to living generously and living on mission. And the first thing that we see is that generous people are gripped by grace. Generous people are gripped by grace. Now, earlier in this chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about to those who do not have riches. And he says they have a great danger because they want to be rich. And he goes on to say that this love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, that this desire to be rich is corrosive to your soul. It will get you off track. Now he turns his attention to those who are rich, those who have money, and he has a warning for them as well. And his warning is not, he doesn't say, quite interestingly, he doesn't say it's sinful to be rich. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible, in fact, uh, praises many wealthy people who are generous with their money. Uh, but nor does he say that they should divest themselves of all their money and become poor. But he does warn them about certain dangers. Now, you may be thinking, well, good, I'm not rich. This doesn't apply to me. And, uh, and, and, you know, and comparatively speaking to most of the people you're around, maybe you are, maybe you're not, I don't know. Uh, but while most of us would not call ourselves rich, uh, not all of our income goes to our basic necessities. For a poor person, all of your income is going to survival. But, but that's not really true for most of us. We have some discretionary income. You, you had some discretion about where you would live. You, you picked particular homes or apartments, and you had some choices. Uh, you had discretion about what type of car you would drive. Now, you may not be driving the car that you want, but you're driving a car probably better than somebody else's. And so you had some discretion. You have discretionary income about Netflix, eating out, travel, those sorts of things. And so we have choices. And, and one of the signs of being prosperous 
is you have those choices. Poor people don't have choices. If you have choices, you are, in a sense, rich. And so here, Paul instructs Timothy on how to disciple rich people. And the first thing he says is, is caution rich people not to become haughty or arrogant. Now, why do riches uh, lead to haughtiness and arrogance? Because Paul doesn't give this caution to poor people. He gives this particularly to rich people. So why is this particularly a danger? Well, well think about what are the type of things that make you proud, uh, that, that can cause you to be arrogant or haughty or proud, uh, or, or to go the opposite direction. What are things that cause you to feel bad about yourself, to have low self-esteem, to, to have a poor uh, self-image? In both cases, both the arrogant and those who suffer from a poor self-image, what they're doing is they're looking for something to give them validation, to say, this is my value. And if, and if you have that thing that he says gives you your value, then you feel good, you're, you're proud. If you don't have something and you feel bad about yourself, you're saying, that's what makes me valuable and I'm ashamed that I don't have that. And, and we do this with uh, uh, lots of different things. Um, and that what we're doing is we're looking for something to say, I have value. What we're looking for in biblical terms is justification. I want a savior that says, I have worth, I have value, and this is what gives it to me. And if I get this, then I have the value and the worth that I need. And if I don't have this, well, I'm just a bum. Now, when we do this, we don't typically have any sort of objective standard. How I decide and how you decide, how do you decide if you're smart? Well, if you're smarter than the people around you. You know, you're not comparing yourself to, to the people in the world. You're only comparing yourself to those around you. How do you decide if you're stupid? Well, you compare yourself to the people around you. So think about that guy at the gym. And you know the guy I'm talking about, right? He struts around the gym. He's the guy on the basketball court who totally dominates, and he is amazing. He is the greatest basketball player at the Garden Ranch YMCA, right? And so, now that's something, right? And so, he's proud. He, he's, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Take that same person, take him up to Denver, put him in the Pepsi arena with the Nuggets. What is he? Man, that guy is a klutz. He's got no game at all. Now, what has happened? Now, even himself, in his own sense of self-worth, when he's down here at the Garden Ranch Y, he feels good about himself. But when he goes up to the Pepsi Arena, he's going, man, I am so uncoordinated. What's changed? Not him, only what he's comparing himself to. And that's how we do with, with various things. And so, uh, what we do is we look to something, athletic ability, intellect, rank, success at work, uh, money as a measure of worth. We compare ourselves favorably to others, and if we compare ourselves favorably to others, we become arrogant. But on the other hand, it's very much a form of pride. If we compare ourselves to others and we feel ashamed, we're measuring ourselves by works. We're looking for justification by things that we do or things that we have. Both the arrogant and the uh, person of low self-esteem have the same problem. They're living by works. They're looking for achievement to prove what they are. And so for those who are rich in this world, money easily becomes a standard. In fact, we wear it, literally. We wear it as a, as a signal to others about our standard. It's why we are obsessed with, uh, with status symbols and designer labels. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is Colorado Springs. 
We were once voted the second worst dressed city in America, and we're proud of it, right? We are not pretentious like those East Coasters, you know? Uh, and so we don't care about labels, unless it's our specialized bike, our K2 skis, our, our Terex jackets, our Patagonia jackets, or if you're slumming North Face. But, but we're just into quality, that's it, right? Now when it comes to outdoor gear, Colorado people are obsessive. It, we just have different labels. We, we have different things that we're concerned about. We're, we're signaling uh, that we have worth and it becomes a point of pride. But the gospel says, your value does not come from your work. It does not come from your achievement. Because as we sang earlier, all I have is Christ. It's the only thing I have that commends me. Everything else, and here's what the Apostle Paul said. He says, the only thing that counts, the only thing that commends me to God, the only thing that gives me any value, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And that's what he says in Galatians. In Philippians, he says the same thing. He uses a, an accounting term. He says, I count everything as a loss. I write it off. It's all red ink. I count everything as a loss except for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, if I believe that, if I believe my worth, my identity does not come from what I do, but comes only from Christ, then, then what that does is, one, it gives you an incredible sense of security. Nobody can take that value from you. Nobody can say, you don't measure up, you don't, you're not, you don't count, you're a loser. No one can say that. Or they can say that, but it's not true, because my father looks upon me and smiles. My father is very proud of me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done and has given, been given to me through faith and faith alone. And if that is true then, if that is true then, if all I have is by grace, then that means the wealth that I have or, or success that you have or anything that you have, it's a gift of God. It ultimately comes as a gift of God. You, you cannot look down your nose at anyone. And there's a tendency when, those, when we achieve a measure of success to look at those and think, well, the reason you don't have this and I do is I deserve it. But when you live by grace, you begin to see, you know, everything I have is by grace. And if everything I have is by grace, then it's mine to share. I cannot, you see, when you're, when you're wealthy and you think you did it all yourself, you have a strong sense of entitlement. Grace liberates you from that sense of entitlement. So the first key to generosity, you have to be gripped by grace. If you're not gripped by grace, then generosity is always going to be a challenge. Uh, secondly, uh, we see that, um, that as God's people, we are to, generous givers are to trust in God's provision, to trust in God's provision. Just as we look to money for our sense of personal worth, we have a temptation to look to money for security. Uh, and, and the thing about money as a sense of security it works to some degree, right? We've talked about this before because if you have enough money and your car breaks down, you can fix it. That, that's kind of nice because if you've ever been in the situation where your car broke down and you didn't have enough money, you know the pain of that. Money adds security. Something goes wrong with a house, it's a bummer to have to buy a new refrigerator, but at least you can buy a new refrigerator. Uh, if you turn 67 and it's time to retire, having a little money in the bank account is kind of handy. You know, it comes in and, and there's a sense of security you get from that. And so money does provide a, a sense of security. And so that's why we look to money for those things. 
But the problem with money, as Paul says here, is that it is so uncertain. John Stott points out, you know, there've been a lot of people who've gone to bed rich and woken up poor. And, uh, and some of you uh, have, uh, have lived through that, right? Seen enough booms and busts in the cycles. And so if your faith is in money, you're always going to be anxious because money is always uncertain. You know, 1923, the world's uh, most successful financiers met at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. Here are the people who were there. The president of the largest independent steel company, the president of the largest utility company, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear on Wall Street, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements all there at this meeting in 1923. 25 years later, 1948, the picture had changed. Charles Schwab died bankrupt after living on borrowed money for the last five years of his life. Samuel Insull died a fugitive from justice, penniless in a foreign land. Howard Hobson was insane. Arthur Critton died abroad, insolvent. Richard Whitney had just been released from prison. Albert Fall was pardoned from prison so that he could die at home. Jesse Livermore died a suicide, as did Leon Frazier and Ivar Kruger. All of these men were the financial masters of the universe, but in their end, the money could not save them. See, money, your faith in money, always leads to anxiety. Always leads to anxiety because it's uncertain. And the antidote to that is not simply saying, oh well, don't trust in money. The antidote is putting your faith in God. Paul says that the reason we trust in money is because we've forgotten or we failed to believe that God is a generous provider. Notice this, he talks about money and instead of, Paul rejects this idea of this rigid asceticism that you're supposed to just be poor, get rid of everything and, and not enjoy things. That, that's not a biblical idea. Certainly it is a biblical idea that we give of our wealth and we're generous and we reduce our lifestyle in order to further the kingdom and help others. But being poor for poor's sake is not a biblical notion. In fact, he notices this, he says, says this. He says that God provides us richly for things of our, for our enjoyment. And we see this throughout the Bible. So when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he put them in the garden and he didn't just give them one tree. You know, here, eat pears, you know. He didn't just give them rice cakes and a protein bar. He, he, he gave them a garden full of delightful things to eat and beautiful things to enjoy. When the prophets talk about the coming of the kingdom, they talk about a day when the hills drip with wine. And, you know, milk is good, but wine, right? You get the picture, enjoyment, pleasure, delight. He talks about a feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Uh, when Jesus comes and he does his miracles, he not only heals the sick, what was his first miracle? He turned water into wine. Because what Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here, let's celebrate, let's, let's enjoy. We feast while the bridegroom is present. And so we see that God is one who gives us good gifts for our enjoyment. Now, if we believe that, if we believe that God is a father who gives good gifts to his children, it changes how we live. Because if I don't believe that God is my father, 
if I believe that, that I've got to provide for myself and money's going to be the thing that provides for me, then I've got to cling and I've got to grab all that I can and I've got to hold on to it because it's insecure. I'm, I'm like a, an orphan in the world who's out there on his own struggling to survive. And I've got this survival scarcity mentality. But if I have a father and a father who's a generous father, then I know even in those dark days, even when it seems like I have nothing, even, even when, when all hope seems lost, he's not going to abandon me. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter seven. He says, which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? I mean, really, would you do that? Or if your son asks for a fish, you're gonna give him a snake. <laughs> you know, you know, so, Dad, I'm hungry. Here, here's a rattler. I mean, you're not gonna do that, right? Uh, instead, he says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts things to those who ask him? The more you know that your Father is a provider, the less you're going to put your faith in money. Now, well, how does that change you? Well, then I then can look at the money and the resources God has given to me, and I can say, okay, I can give in a way that's sacrificial, because I know my father's still gonna care for me. I'm gonna be okay. You can reduce your lifestyle and still be a happy person. You, you can still be okay because ultimately God is the provider. But ultimately, Paul is saying something more too. He says there in verse 19, he speaks about storing up uh, riches in heaven. And now what he, he talks about, these, storing up these riches, he's not saying if you give more money, you get to buy a better mansion when you get to glory. Nor is he saying, if you, if you give more money, you're going to get more good stuff. You know, it's not, it's not like, hey, I'm going to pay for all these things and God's going to reward me. Any reward we get in glory is by grace alone. We're going to be rewarded on the basis of Christ's work, not our work. Our works, you know, God uses our works in glorious ways, but it's all by grace, right? Your salvation is not by works at all. But what he's saying is, if you understand that the kingdom of heaven is real, then you're gonna live for life, which is life. You're gonna live for the real life, not the life that is passing. And so, so we, we lay up that foundation. We set our hearts on things above because our hope is in heaven, it's not in here. We're looking for life, which is truly life. And so, so it changes how we live. We can live generously because our hope is not in this world. And so therefore, finally, generous givers live by faith. Generous givers live by faith. If you believe that the kingdom of God is coming and you believe that God is a gracious father who provides for his children, what you believe is gonna show up in how you live. In fact, in fact, an act of faith, what it means to live by faith is to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually see if this is true. I'm gonna act on, on, the, on the belief that what God is saying is true. Now, if I believe this is true, then I'm going to do certain things. If I don't do certain things, then it's a sign that I don't believe it's true. And so even if my faith is weak and trembling, here's what Paul says we're going to do. First, he says, we'll be rich in good works. Rich in good works. Command those who are well-to-do in this world to be rich in good works. Now, one of the dangers of wealth uh, is it can make you lazy. And the reason wealth makes you lazy is the more money you have, the more you can pay people to do things you don't want to do. 
And so, and so you know, you don't want to actually serve. I'd rather pay somebody else to serve. In fact, I, I was uh, first out of seminary. I was a youth pastor in a church, and uh, the church had a school, and, and, and uh, so we had a gym that was both the, the gym on, during the week for our school and the sanctuary for our church on Sunday mornings. And it was actually a beautiful gym. And it was more like he played basketball in a sanctuary than had sanctuary worship in a gym. But one of the things we had to do every Saturday is you had to put down these mats on the floor so you didn't scratch the wood floor and then set up the folding chairs. And so every man in the church, call a sexist, every man, uh, had to sign up, didn't have to sign up, were assigned uh, particularly Saturday to come and set up chairs and Sunday night to take them down. Well, there was a rather uh, well-to-do lawyer in the church and he called up the senior pastor and goes, can I just pay somebody to set up my chairs? You know, can, can I just do that? I don't, I don't set up chairs. I'm, I'm a lawyer, right? You know, that's not what I do. Well, no. We serve. And just because you're giving money, that doesn't exempt you from service. We are, we are to serve. We're to get our hands dirty and, and engage in good works. We are, we are about the work of the kingdom. And, and so, so we are to, to be like Jesus, who, who, who though, although he was rich, for our sakes became poor, so that we, out of his poverty, might become rich. And do you remember what Jesus did that last night with his disciples? There's a gathering at the table to celebrate uh, celebrate Passover. He takes off his robe and he, he takes the bowl of water and he takes the basin and the towel and he washes the disciples' feet. Jesus, the king of the universe, stooped down, got his hands dirty and washed the smelly feet of his disciples and he said, see what I've done for you? That's how you're to love one another. We're to serve. We don't just give, we're to serve. Well, they're not only to be rich in good works, but he also says that they are to be rich in generosity. Uh, they are to be generous and ready to share. So uh, just as you cannot substitute giving for serving, you cannot substitute serving for giving. We, as God's people, are to engage in both serving and giving. Now, when Paul says we're to be generous, ready to share, he used a word uh, that will be familiar to some of you uh, in our church, I believe you meet in a community room right back there. He uses the word uh, koinonikos, koinonikos, which is a similar root word as the word koinonians. Any koinonians? Okay, yes, we have several. And koinonia means to share, uh, to, it means to hold things in common, literally. And so what he's saying to the rich is says, you have been entrusted with this money, but you're to hold it in common with God's people and with God's mission. It is your money. You are to steward it. But it's not your money just for your sake. You are to live in solidarity with those who are in need and to use your wealth, uh, not just for your own enjoyment, but for those with whom uh, you've uh, been joined to. Uh, and so one of the things that you realize is when you've been gripped by grace is that you find joy in using your wealth to bless others rather than simply using it for yourself. You, you actually say, you know, Jesus is the one who said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And the question is, do we believe Jesus is telling the truth? Well, I believe Jesus always told the truth, but man, that's getting kind of, it's kind of meddling there, right? You know, that, that's a tough one. So living by faith is saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live as if Jesus is telling the truth. I'm gonna, call me crazy, I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna act as if Jesus is actually honest. 
and, and we're going to give ready to share because we care about his mission. A great example of this is in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Have you ever wondered how Jesus was able to travel around and, I mean, like, when did he work? And he's got 12 disciples, so they're never in one place. They're moving around. How did they eat? Well, you know, Jesus could do miracles, right? He fed the 5,000 and so on and got fish in the boat and all that. But, but it doesn't seem like the miracles were the normal way for feeding him and his disciples. In Luke chapter 8, uh, we read this, that there were... Uh, Jesus was traveling around with his 12, preaching uh, in various towns, but there are also some women disciples who were with them. And here's what it says in Luke 8, 2 and 3. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Do you see what happened there? Jesus is traveling around, and these women have been so transformed by what Jesus has done for their lives, they are bankrolling his ministry. They're providing for him. They, 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 they see what Jesus has done for them, how he's rescued them out of slavery to sin and darkness and evil spirits and infirmity, and they say, because of what God has done for me, I want others to experience this joy as well. And they're funding the ministry of Jesus. And so, so that is part of our call as God's people. When you get grace deeply, you share grace generously. And so as we look at uh, God and his mission, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, do you believe the kingdom of God is real? Are you living for life which is really life? Or are you merely living for the present age? Do you believe that God is a faithful provider, that he will care for you, that he will provide for you for everything that you need, and that he has a glorious inheritance in store for you that will never perish, spoil, or fade? Do you believe that? Then if we do believe that, then we'll be a generous people. And so we as God's people will live by faith because we believe the gospel is true, and therefore, we'll put our money where God's mission is. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are the God who gives us all that we need, certainly far more than we deserve. Because if you were to give us what we deserve, we would have nothing. All that we have is by grace. All that we ever have is by grace. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not live as those who are arrogant who think that our money is our money and just for us, that we've earned it, we've deserved it, and therefore we're going to keep it. We pray instead we would be generous, ready to share, bearing one another's burdens, sharing in the work of the kingdom, because we believe that this is true and this is real. So Lord, I pray for all of us. Give us the courage to live by faith. For some today, they, they, they're, they're just afraid. They're afraid if they give, they're not gonna have enough. They're afraid if they share, you will not come through. Oh, Lord, prod them. Help them to see you are the faithful provider. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.